The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome a colleague of mine, Dr. Ronnie Chernoff. She has a Ph.D. as well as an R.D. She is the Associate Director for Education and Evaluation at the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. She is also affiliated with the Central Arkansas VA Healthcare System, and she is internationally known for her work on nutrition and aging. She is probably one of the most prolific authors and speakers on the topic of aging, nutrition, and health promotion. For example, she's given over 515 continuing education presentations alone, and she has just completed a chapter in the Handbook of Food Nutrition specifically on nutrition and aging. So without further ado, Dr. Chernoff, welcome. Thank you. All right. So if we're lucky, we're going to get older. And as it is, the American population, according to the latest statistics, say that we are probably going to double the number of people age 65 and older by 2050. Right now, there are about 41.4 million So we are an aging population, and there are specific challenges to getting older with regard to nutritional health, and I want us to explore them. So my first question to you is, what happens to our bodies physiologically as we age? Well, it's it's really quite interesting because the changes that I'm about to tell you happen to everybody, but everybody changes at a different rate depending on their lifelong nutrition, depending on their activity level, depending on their genetic makeup. But as we get older, we tend to lose uh, what we refer to as lean body mass or muscle tissue, but it also includes organ tissue, liver, kidney, heart. And as we get older, we slowly lose that kind of tissue. Along with that, total body water tends to decrease because water is generally associated with protein tissue in the body. Our bones decrease in mass. When it is pathological, we refer to it as osteoporosis. And the fourth body compartment is fat, and the fat component of our body tends to increase a little bit But relative to all of the other losses, the proportion of fat in our body is, goes up. Fat also tends to be, tends to become more internal and it migrates away from the extremities and tends to settle in the middle. And, um, I think that we're probably all really quite familiar with the fact that we tend to get thicker around the waist and, and perhaps around the tummy than we do um, when we're younger. And that happens pretty much to everybody, but at a different rate for all of the reasons that I have already shared with you. Mm-hmm. Now, along with those statistics of, of rate changes of, in population, there are also statistics about 
individuals living in poverty as we get older, and I think it's especially problematic for women, um, in part due to the disparity in, in how much we earn over the course of our lifetime. But the median income for elderly people, and again, I'm, I'm using that word, but I'm, I'm applying that to 65 and older, is about $33,000. So that's median. So when you think about how much food costs and how much medicine and medical care costs, you can start to understand a little bit about the challenges we face when we're trying to buy a healthy diet to keep us well. And in addition to that, I was looking at some statistics on dental issues. And to me, this is probably one of the most frightening. I read that, let's see, this is from 2008. It was the Alliance for Aging Research. And they report that the shortfall in oral health care for the elderly in the United States is huge. And it's going to double by 2030. In 2005, an estimated 25 million adults pre- and post-retirement went without dental care because they couldn't afford it. So as dietitians, you know, what do we do? We recommend that people eat more fruits and vegetables. But then you look at dental care issues, and I see that as being a tremendous problem, and I wonder if you could talk to that. Um, Yeah, actually I can. There are um, several factors that play into this, one of which is, is... uh, related to what it is that I just told you about changes in body composition because as we lose bone density and as we lose protein tissue, and I want you to think about your gums being protein tissue, then teeth tend to become loose in their sockets and it is easier for food particles to be trapped below the gum line and we get a different kind of cavity, a cavity that is not on the surface of the tooth, which is called a coronal cavity, but a cavity that, you know, may be below where the gum line is that people aren't as sensitive to. They don't see it. They don't feel it when they're brushing their teeth. And so the likelihood of having oral problems in older age is highly likely simply because of that. Then we go with the issues that are related to diet. And, of course, as you said, we encourage people to eat fruits and vegetables. But we also have to encourage them to eat foods that are rich in vitamin D and calcium, which would be the dairy products. And generally, as a population, we tend to not consume dairy products as much when we are older than when we are younger and there is at least a pseudo-epidemic of vitamin D deficiency in this country. I mean, um, literally everybody I know is taking supplemental vitamin D, just their little green capsules, which I don't necessarily recommend. I'd rather see people drinking skim milk, eating yogurt, eating cheeses, and getting their calcium and vitamin D in other forms. The other issue that happens with vitamin D is that as we get older, we tend not to spend very much time in outdoors and in the sunlight because of the the risk of uh, skin cancer. And when people do go out, they go out slathered in uh, sunblock, and um, and that sort of counteracts the effects of being out in the sun relative to vitamin D stimulation. Older people also have less of a reserve of the compound that gets activated to turn into vitamin D eventually 
is lower in older people. And one thing, if you don't mind, that I'd really like to point out is that not only are you talking about the over 65 population, but we're also dealing with um, the fact that the over 85 population is getting increasingly large. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the effects of all of the medical advances that we've made over the past 50 or 75 years has been that people do live longer. We've eliminated a lot of the infectious disease and, and things that used to kill people at an earlier age. And so not only do we have a huge cohort of over 65, but we also have a growing cohort of uh, people over 85 and more and more people living to become centenarians and be over 100. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually think it was at one of your nutrition and aging seminars, which have been excellent, I might add. I think I learned that it was actually that segment of the older population that was growing most rapidly. That's correct. Yeah, with a whole other set of problems, I might add, and especially I was looking at how many people who are living in care facilities receive dental care, and it's very low. Even the simple act of brushing our teeth is just not there, and I'm kind of focused on the teeth because I think they are, we don't provide enough services for people to take care of their teeth early on, and then we wonder why people become malnourished with horrible consequences later on. So I'm big into preventive care, as I know you are, too. I wanted to ask you what nutritional issues you see, in addition to the vitamin D and protein, as being the big ones facing an aging population. One of my bully pulpits, if you will, my my little box that I get on periodically, has to do with people consuming adequate fluid and taking drinking enough fluid, and, and um, you know, it was very interesting that the First Lady is on a campaign now to get everybody to drink water. Water is wonderful, but a lot of people don't drink it. But anything that is liquid at room temperature is considered to be a fluid, and we have periodically gotten very concerned about the fact that the elderly segment of our population is simply not consuming adequate amount of fluid. It should be, they should take a minimum of a liter and a half a day or in household measures, at least a quart and a half a day. And, you know, I live in the, in the, in the very hot south. And um, when I very first moved to Arkansas, there were every summer we dealt with people who were dying in heat waves because of electrolyte imbalances related to being uh, dehydrated. And it's an issue that is often not considered when we talk about nutrition, but should be. Mm-hmm. And if you have an elderly friend or you are um, a little bit older yourself, thinking about drinking more fluid and whether it's water or juice or skim milk or you know any number of, of fluid products, it's really, really, really important, and it's always an issue. And when people become ill and are running a fever or have a little bit of diarrhea or are losing fluid for some reason or another, we need to think about the fact that they have to be rehydrated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that You know, we need to be talking about water in the realm of nutrition. I remember learning very specifically that water was one of the most important nutrients, the most important nutrient 
in our diet. So it's nutrition 101, but you're right, we don't think of it like that. Now, one of the questions that always comes up, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is you know, a lot of elderly people are in the habit of drinking coffee or tea regularly, and there's always been this debate about whether or not you end up having diuresis and you, you lose water. It causes, a, it's like a diuretic, so we end up going to the bathroom. At the end of the day, though, I think that there's a net gain of fluid, even if you're drinking a caffeinated product. Would you agree? Well, yeah, I mean, caffeinated products are often considered to be not only diuretics, but I remember when I was in my 20s, I was a camp counselor one summer with somebody who appreciated the laxative effects of coffee. Uh Um, But I think if you're dehydrated, your body's going to hold on to the water. And one of the reasons that we see a lot of dehydration, even among free-living elderly, is because one of the common occurrences among older adults is a mild incontinence. And if somebody is going out to visit their grandchildren or going to lunch with their friends or going to a movie, they're going to try and avoid drinking adequate amounts of fluid because they don't want to have to you know, how be risking an accident. Mm-hmm. And so people self-dehydrate and then they never rehydrate again. There are some very, very interesting studies that were done in England a number of years ago that showed that older people, when they were purposely dehydrated and given salty foods, this is sort of, you know, an airplane kind of thing. You give mm-hmm. people salty <laughs> peanuts um, and then they get very, very thirsty that if you gave them salty crackers or salty peanuts or or pretzels or something, and they would dehydrate. And in a control group where they had young young men and older men, the young men would consume enough fluid to rehydrate. The older men never came back to their baseline, Hmm. not within a 48-hour period anyway. And it's really quite fascinating that this uh, phenomena has been shown and, you know, makes it even more important that we are very aware of what it is that our older friends or parents or family or friends drink is adequate in their intake, particularly in these, in, you know, it's still, it's 90 degrees here in Little Rock today. Yeah. You know, and people um, really don't uh, consume adequate amounts of fluid throughout the day. Mm-hmm. For for people who tend to get up during the night to have to go to the bathroom, we try and concentrate their fluid intake for earlier in the day so that they can get through the night without having to get up. But it's pretty much of a very widespread and very common problem. I'm so glad you brought that up. I need to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Ronnie Chernoff. She is a Ph.D. and R.D., that means registered dietitian. She is the Associate Director for Education and Evaluation at the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. She is a prolific author, speaker, and she is most well-known for her work on nutrition and aging. And I am delighted to have you with me. This is just such important information, and we take these little things for granted. You know, another thing about dehydration that I wanted to bring up in this discussion is that we really don't fully recognize those subtleties of dehydration, like a headache, for example, or even mild confusion or feeling more tired. 
we think immediately that it must be something else, but it could actually be dehydration. Yes, it can. It's a, it, that's very common. There's also a decreased urine output and lack of perspiration in hot weather. An older person does not respond as readily and as rapidly as does a younger person in relative to being sensitive to thirst. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another issue. It it has to do with some physiologic triggers. And older people um, really don't experience uh, intensive thirst the way that younger people do. And even even people in really good shape who are very active, their thirst sensitivity diminishes with with older age, and that adds to the um, to the problems that people have. Mm-hmm. Another issue that I'd like to bring up has to do with protein intake because I know there is some controversy about how much protein a person needs on, on the one hand, but then also we get back to the dental issue and trying to get protein when perhaps we can't chew meat the way we used to, and that's such a significant source of protein in our diets. Do you find that the elderly populations you see are short on protein intake? Well, protein protein requirements in older adults tends to be a little bit higher because we're less efficient at, at making new protein to replace protein that we've lost. Um, and protein needs go up if you have a fever or you have an injury or you have uh, surgery or um, untold numbers of other things. And so most people don't. There are a lot of reasons why they don't. One you've mentioned earlier is the economic issue. One is the chewing issue. Another is that they tend not to think about alternate sources of protein. For example, skim milk and skim milk products. For example, eggs. It's, uh, you know, the, the fear that existed 30 years ago about not eating too many eggs has basically been disproven. And um, eggs are a fabulous source of protein. They are the gold standard against which all other proteins are measured. And the the softer proteins like fish, for example, tend to be um, a little bit pricey. And um, and it's difficult to cook, and, and people um, tend to try to eat or, or purchase um, prepared foods that they don't have to, uh, you know, open a cookbook and spread out over their kitchen counter to prepare. And it's uh, it's it's a concern, particularly when they're st- under some kind of stress, whether it be emotional or physiological. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a gram of protein per kilogram body weight recommendation? Well, generally, for older adults, we start out at 1.1 grams per kilogram of body weight. But if they are not feeling well, if they have a fever, if they have an infection, if they have a broken bone, if they've had surgery, then we tend to go up to 1.2, 1.3. There is controversy among many people about how much protein, but if they are well hydrated, then you will not... Um, have any untoward side effects that that protein will be tolerated much much better um, in terms of any um, concerns that people have. But we've we've given patients in the hospital who have bed sores, 
We've given them close to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight to encourage healing. And, but we keep them very well hydrated so that we keep flushing the, you know, the breakdown products of protein out of their kidneys. And there's been work done looking at uh, a fear that if you gave an older patient too much protein, you were going to damage their kidneys, and it's been totally disproven. Even among individuals with impaired kidney function? Well, then they have kidney disease, and that's right. a whole other issue. Right. Okay, but in, but in an otherwise healthy older adult... We'll shoot for the 1.1 gram. Right. And and in patients with kidney disease, we tend to stick with the proteins that, as you know, are referred to as high biological value protein. Mm -hmm. And once again, the gold standard is eggs. So we used to make eggnogs and sorbet with with egg you know with egg whites and things along that line most of the protein in eggs are in the egg whites anyway and and it's been interesting because now fast food places are coming out with egg white omelets and scrambled egg whites and that's pure protein mhm you know another, no cholesterol <laughs> right yeah i i've always found the whole fear of eggs issue to be quite interesting especially because egg yolks in particular are such a great source of the antioxidants lutein and zeaxanthin i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly that yeah, help <laughs> yeah that help protect our eyesight so for all of our listeners this is a great take home message don't be afraid to eat eggs they're really good for you Okay, another issue that typically comes up, and I remember when these new recommendations for sodium came out, I thought, oh, good grief, because I remember in my clinical days to put somebody on a 2,400 milligram sodium restriction was difficult. For In fact, 4,000 milligram restrictions was difficult, and I see these recommendations come out to limit sodium to 1,500 milligrams per day, and on top of that, Add in all of those factors that we discussed. Maybe we've got some taste changes, so we, we want to enhance the flavor of our food a little bit, and the reliance on more processed foods. I mean, you simply cannot get sodium down that low and eat out. Um, I'm totally with you. The other thing is that we, in, in my early clinical days, we used to restrict sodium to control blood pressure, but... One of the things that's happened over the course of my career is that the medications that are used to control blood pressure and other strategies have come have come a really long way. I actually know somebody who she's now in her mid-70s who's managed to control her blood pressure by exercising, walking every day. I mean, she doesn't do a lot of strenuous exercise, but she walks every day and and has managed to keep her blood pressure within a, a relatively normal range. And medications now are, you know, will control blood pressure depending on what the etiology of the hypertension is. And and restricted sodium diets are being used less, far less than they used to be. And I think that's a good thing because I think part of Part of what we te we tend to forget relative to you know nutrition in older adults is um, is the enjoyment of eating exactly um, and you know we need to we need to uh, keep that in mind as well that this is 
not only is it a physiologic need, but it's also a social need. And, and um, you know, when things taste good, people eat them. Exactly. And I think, as you mentioned, the social value, you know, in terms of keeping our mental health, having a social group where we get together, and typically that involves eating out or even getting together and eating at someone's house. So I think that while both of us are firmly dedicated to nutrients and their role in preventing disease, there's also that factor of enjoyment and the social value that I think requires much more attention. We don't have much longer, and I had to bring up with you this Determine Your Nutritional Health Assessment. And I know you worked on this document. I have been promoting this document for years, but it's just a simple series of questions that really gets at nutritional risk, and it's a scoring system. And um, I'll just go through these. You know, if a person, for example, has an illness or a condition that made them change the kind or amount of food they eat, that puts them at nutritional risk. If they only eat two meals a day or less, if they don't eat enough fruits or vegetables or dairy products, if they're consuming a lot of alcohol, tooth or mouth problems, if they don't have enough money to buy the food they need, if they eat alone, that increases risk for nutritional health. Prescription drugs or over-the-counter drugs, using three or more of those increases risk. Of weight loss, paying attention to whether or not we've lost or gained a significant amount of weight, and simply not being able to, to take care of our physical needs. What would you like to pull out in particular from this nutritional health risk assessment that is most critical for you? Um, for me, it's eating two meals a day or less. You know, I think that a lot of, you know, there's there's a myth that that people who uh, need help and subsistence, food, and particularly food stamps, and that's been in the news lately, to allow them to purchase an adequate amount of food is really, really key. And not not eating enough, which is what that question was trying to get at, mm-hmm. um, has a lot of dimensions to it because it has the social dimensions and it has um, the economic dimensions and it has the you know loss of appetite that may be related to a chronic disease dimension. And, you know, being on multiple medications changes your appetite or makes things taste funny because of the medication. And to me, that would that was one of the key things that we included in that. Well, our time is very, very short. I have a minute left. Do you have one take-home message to give our listeners? Well, I think that... Um, Eating a diet that is that contains a variety of foods that has adequate protein that includes adequate fluids, and I think I mentioned a quart and a half a day um, or more, but that would be the minimum, is really a key to keeping um, people healthy, and, and that's our goal is to keep them healthy and at home for as long as we possibly can. Well, we both agree that food is medicine. I know that. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I will post a link to that nutritional health assessment for our listeners. We've been speaking to Dr. Ronnie Chernoff. She holds a Ph.D. as well as an R.D. She is at the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, where she serves as the Associate Director for 
Education and Evaluation. She is very well known for her research and work on nutrition and aging. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you, Dr. Chernoff, for your research and your help in helping us all understand the critical connection between nutrition and aging. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you very much for having me.